Hi, and welcome back to another issue of The Garbage Shoot. Uh, these are quick reviews and quick thoughts on movies playing now in the in the movie show theater place, uh, <laughs> where you go to watch movies. I hadn't been there in a while. It had been a few, few the months. Uh, I, I, I haven't been to the Cinematheque, the Cinematheque, uh, <laughs> over the K of the cinema, uh, since... Uh, uh, I think whenever Ninja Turtles came out oh, was August. the last time I'd been in a theater. Wow. Yeah, the first week of August, I think. Yeah. Uh, and and then this past week, I went and saw Saw X and the movie we're talking about today on this episode, which is The Killers of the Flower Moon. So that's a double feature for you, if ever there was one. That is certainly a double feature about uh, the troubles of the American experiment. <laughs> so we here at the, at the Good Trash Studio, we all uh, we all made our way out to see the new Scorsese. Scorsese movie. Marty Pills dropping another one. Yeah, he, he's he's fighting for cinema. He's f- fighting off one minute at a time. He had, Avengers he had to join Letterboxd to, to join the fight. <laughs> I welcome so, Marty. We stand him. Yeah, that's we right. stand we, Marty we, on Letterboxd. We do stand Marty. Uh, but I am Arthur Gordon, and I'm joined by... I'm Dustin Sells, and I'm joined by... I'm Dalton Stewart. <laughs> and who are you joined by? <laughs> uh, Giles the dog. <laughs> he is in studio. He is licking his paw, it looks like, so good for him. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the new hyped filmed in Oklahoma, so a little bit of personal uh, favoritism there for us. Oh, uh, Oklahoma. Where the wind goes somewhere. Uh, right now it's... Sweeping with the rain. Blistering cold rain, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, uh, we're going to be talking about this Killers of the Flower Moon. So I'm going to give us a synopsis of this from Apple uh, and all their little promo material. We're going to talk about that. We're going to give some just probably quick, quick reviews uh, because I think a lot of what we want to talk to is going to be a little spoilery. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll just kind of real quick uh, do those quick things and then move into real spoiler territory on this. So from Apple at the turn of the 20th century, oil brought a fortune to the Osage Nation who become some of the richest people in the world overnight. The wealth of these Native Americans immediately attracted white interlopers who manipulated, extorted, and stole as much Osage money as they could before resorting to murder. Based on a true story and a book of the same title, and told through the improbable romance of Ernest Burkhart and Molly Kyle, Killers of the Flower Moon is an epic Western crime saga where real love crosses paths with unspeakable betrayal. Also starring Robert De Niro, Jesse Plemons, uh, with Leo DiCaprio and Lily Gladstone. Killers of the Flower Moon is directed by Academy Award winner Martin Scorsese from a screenplay by Eric Roth and Scorsese and based on David Grant's best-selling book. Hailing from Apple Studios, Killers of the Flower Moon was produced alongside Imperative Entertainment, Sequelia Productions, Appian Way. Producers are Martin Scorsese, Dan Friedkin, Bradley Thomas, and Daniel Lupi, with DiCaprio, Rick Yorn, Adam Sumner, Miriam Bauer, Lisa Frechette, John Atwood, Shay Kramer, and Neil Jules serving as executive producers. This movie is rated R for violence, grisly imagery, and some language, and it runs 206 minutes, which roughly translates to three and a half hours. Ooh, baby. It's a long time. Killers of the Flower Moon had its premiere at Cannes Film Festival in 2023. Uh, was released theatrically in October, and it will arrive on Apple Plus at some point uh, after it finishes its theatrical run. Which th- I guess is been helped along by Paramount. They're kind of yeah, the I saw their co distributor. Yeah. yeah, on the on when I went and saw it, I saw the, the the tag for Paramount at the beginning. So I was yeah, huh, I didn't I realize that was there. Think they're Apple's partner on Napoleon as well. They gotcha. might have a different partner on mm. that, but yeah, no, Apple's partnering with two traditional distributors for their big their and big pushes. I have this year. thoughts on Napoleon, but nonetheless, we'll well, maybe we'll get to that in November. Mm-hmm. Are they little? They are small they're thoughts, small short thoughts. Well, if you look down, you'll get a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> you'll see it. It'll be all you want. Oh, well, the Paramount thing makes sense because we got that little stinger at the beginning of the film from Marty 
Yeah. Welcome mm-hmm. to the movies, uh, yeah. which is a big Paramount thing they do. I, I've yeah. noticed a lot of their films, they have the caster yeah, or somebody talking Dungeons to you. Yeah, Dungeons & Dragons had that thing. I, I screamed at it, I think. Uh, Top Gun did it. Interesting. I didn't so. get that uh, when the our, our beloved Warren is now a Regal Theater. It mm. uh, has been for a few years now. Didn't have that preamble at the Regal showing, but at the Cinemark showing. With the Marty? Yeah, no, oh, Mar- really? no Marty at Regal, huh. but at Cinemark. Yeah. We got the Marty. Interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't know how, how that gets decided or who, who yeah. makes those decisions. Maybe it's interesting. Nicole Kidman has a giant stake in <laughs> something. <laughs> Didn't it, like Marty. It is wild. They sat on this movie all the way since February though. I mean, that's when can happened and well, uh, a big Oscar push at the end it, of the year. I mean, sure. yeah. I mean, and that's uh, usually they hold off on those kind of releases thing, right? for that. I mean, what, uh, Glazer's new movie is already premiered at what? Yeah. Is that yeah. Yeah. Or a yeah. I think, or I think somewhere? It, it played everything too. Um, and this then, also was only going to get a limited release, I think until Dune got pushed. Oh, is that fact? So this, it opened up the space. Yeah. I mean, this didn't get its IMAX, uh, dates until after Dune as, mm. as if I remember correctly. I'll tell you what but I want to see. Yeah. I, I want to see Oklahoma numbers versus nation numbers. I would be really curious because several, I mean that, especially that first weekend, most of the screenings were sold out. Yeah. Uh, at a couple different theaters and even going this past week, I was in a mostly full auditorium at 1150 in the morning on a Friday. Nice. Mm-hmm. So it's been really cool to see that turn out in Oklahoma. Well, Obviously a lot of buy-in. Yeah, and I noticed uh, the Kiowa tribe down where I come from, uh, they bought out the theater in Anadarko. Mm. Oh, and, nice. uh, we're, so we're it's a conspiracy? Putting out a, well, no, not a conspiracy, <laughs> but I mean, the interest is there. You well, know, to, to your point, though, sound of freedom. To, to your point, though, Arthur, yeah, be careful teaching this movie in uh, Ryan Walters schools <laughs> <laughs> or letting anybody listen to this conversation about the movie. I've watched Pleasantville recently, and yeah. it all makes sense now. <laughs> <laughs> now we know where we A are. A prophetic text, if nothing else. That's for sure. Uh, well, here we are talking Killers of the Flower Moon. Um... I think should be a little interesting uh, take here. So let's just start uh, and we'll just go around. Dalton, we'll start with you. Let's just do quick reviews, big overhead type stuff. So we can kind of get into some more spoilery stuff in a minute. Yeah, uh, I like this. Uh, I've been really excited. Uh, listened to the David Grand book to sort of get prepared. I uh, do, do, do my homework. Took a trip to the uh, First Americans Museum. Really thinking about this one with intentionality, getting excited about a big Oklahoma epic. We haven't had one before. Uh, it was hard to not kind of have that sort of, I mean, not hometown because this is Osage County. That's up by the Kansas border. And I'm, I'm a central Oklahoma guy forever. Uh, but at, at the same time, there, there is an undeniable amount of like, finally, our weird fucked up history is getting the grand sweeping epic it deserves. Uh, and it's, it's been hard not to get kind of swept up in that, but I, I am really taken aback by the film, you know, again, having, gotten done my homework with the book and seen the film two, twice now. Uh, I, I think it stands among sort of the best movies that Scorsese's made at the latter part of his career. I would say, you know, his 21st century leg of his career, let's say, I think it's among the best he's done in that era. Um, there are some blind spots there to, for me, to be fair, uh, silence, kind of the most notable one. Um, but I, I, I'm a big fan of this movie, uh, a huge improvement over his last three plus hour, three and a half hour epic, the Irishman, which is a film I don't really care for. Uh, I like the last half hour of that movie a lot. Um, really think that lands the plane there, but yeah, I found that movie kind of insufferable and this just, whew, I love this movie. I think it's great. Um, it only works because Leo is playing the most egregiously stupid person on the face of the planet. Uh, mm-hmm. Just a true Oklahoma shit kicker. Uh, if and you've met a few. Uh-huh. Uh huh. <laughs> something I consider myself something of an expert on. I went to high school with them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I majored in it. <laughs> if 
Ernest Burkhart was portrayed with more guile or agency, he would be so detestable that the movie would be unwatchable. Mm -hmm. And so they wisely choose to interpret his character uh, being one of sort of small-minded lack of guile makes and sort of easy motivations and interest. A guy guy of like simple tastes Mm -hmm. and, and simple notions easily manipulated by a much more conniving relative. And Mm -hmm. I think that's the only way you make that character somebody you can build a movie around because the other way you could tell the story is almost too upsetting and, and too hard to, and again, we have to assume a lot of, we have to guess a lot of things about Ernest Burkhart. There's not really a lot of historical record about him. Um, so, or, or Molly for that matter, Molly kind of drops off the historical record late in this story that's told, uh, and the film has to kind of fill in the gaps there in some places. And I think Scorsese and Eric Roth's screenplay does a good job of filling in the historical record, but it's hard not to wonder. And I just listened to Caleb Masters uh, and crew, uh, their Cinematropolis, uh, the cinematic schematic uh, podcast episode about this. And they, they spend more time than we'll get to spend today kind of talking about you know, who maybe should have made this movie in a, in a better world, a more equitable world where, you know, Osage people are able to tell a $200 million epic uh, about, you know, one of the most painful periods of their history. Uh, that's definitely a more interesting and more rewarding film. Uh, but as it stands, I think Scorsese made the best movie a carpetbagger could have made about this. Uh, and I think the last 20 minutes really lands the plane. I think the sort of epilogue coda mm-hmm. that this film has is kind of a statement from the filmmaker about like the moral logistics uh, of making the movie in the first place. And I think that's pretty valuable. Uh, So that's, that's all I have to say until we can kind of crack this open and really talk about what happens in it. Uh, Because the book and film are structured in such different ways that one things that are a spoiler for the book would not be a spoiler for the movie and vice versa, Mm -hmm. which is kind of, kind of interesting. Uh, so I'll leave it to there until we can kind of crack this open because neither of you has read the grand book. Correct? I have not. I didn't think so. I mean, I figured, you know, both of you have just passing at least passing familiarity with the events portrayed before the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I does, Arthur looks like he's getting some notes ready. So, Dustin, what about you? How did you? I know you're much more mixed on this than I am, but you liked it. I liked it. I mean, it, it is a good movie. It's a well-made movie. There's is not one of those things where I'm like, oh, there's these huge obvious flaws. I, I think the choice to make make Ernest a bit of a fool, uh, but, you know, uh, d- um, wicked at the same time. A like, uh, absolutely yeah. aware what he's doing is wrong, but also sort of, it, 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 it interestingly finds um, some places of sympathy with him mm-hmm. that he's he's playing this game, but he also, I think, truly does seem to fall in love with Molly. And uh, and I think that is a, a necessary choice if you're going to tell the story that way, but which is simply just raise the question, why are we telling the story this way mm-hmm. in the very first place? And so I, I do find that to be a bit of a flaw that I, I would like to see, as you mentioned earlier, uh, more of that Osage perspective on, on the film. And, I, and I think you could have written that movie, and I think Scorsese could have even made that movie. Well, it's good that he... You know, read a pipe for February, the novel. Uh, I forget the author's name. Mm. Uh, he's uh, from the Redcorn family, and uh, I believe, and Yancey Redcorn, uh, a friend of a friend of a friend, uh, is one of the is yeah. The he's, chief. A, he's from Norman. Yeah, yeah he's, he's the chief, chief in this yeah. film. Uh, but I think the author of Pipe for February is a relative of his. But that mm-hmm. that novel is about this time period and is from the Osage perspective. And that and that's a better adaptation yeah. choice, I think. I mean, you could sort of bring the two together and make it into a crime story, and you could do the tr- sort of true crimey kind of thing that Chloe Scorsese's doing. 
doing there. But, you know, and I'm a big fan of long movies and I'm a big fan of slow movies. And, and the pacing works fine for me. I'm never bored, per se. It is quite long. My bladder is challenged uh, by this particular film. And, I, and it's sort of designed for at-home viewing. And we might talk a little bit later about um, Apple and Scorsese going after some theaters for inserting intermissions and uh, whatnot into this. But it does run a little bit long. And it's, it's, it's a very, very normal movie in that sense. It just happens to be quite long and telling the story from a perspective that I sort of kind of question. Mm. So I, I, like I said, I like it. I was not bored. I, I enjoyed the film, but I, I wanted something else, I think from this movie and uh, knowing that uh, it, it didn't ring quite as just super, super successful for me. Again, I like it. Is it, this is sort of like damning with faint praise is what I'm trying to say here it, it, is that I like what I like, but I just, I found myself thinking Scorsese you have been more innovative I've I've seen you do better work working with your screenplays working with your actors um, and uh, that you have uh, elicited a, a bit more of a sinister edge at times and I would have liked to have seen more of that and uh, so for me that that part just you know didn't really work I, I think I, I, we mentioned this when we were talking after the screening I think it does eastern Oklahoma kind of dirty uh, it makes eastern Oklahoma look a lot more like western Oklahoma to me and I realize that might be for those who are not from around here and they have one assumption of our geography but um, it's much more hilly and quite a few more trees and it's got those Ozark foothills and it, it really felt very empty and sparse well this is more northern Oklahoma though yeah yeah. well northeast Oklahoma yeah it's just straight north I mean Alaska's uh, not far off of I-35. It's it pretty it, more similar to Kansas. I mean, it's not Kansas flat, yeah. but it's closer to Kansas than it is I had a, East Oklahoma. I had it pegged out for the uh, south of Tulsa area for some reason. Nah, north no. of Tulsa. So maybe my I mean, it's like an hour from here, okay. yeah, roughly. Yeah. Well, that that actually helps a little bit there, yeah. but I just it, it just felt more like where I grew up than yeah. it did Eastern Oklahoma to me, and so that's just me just not knowing, I guess, coming in. But anyway, it, it's 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 very very good, and I feel fine about it. But I'm it's not it didn't blow my hair back in any way is what I want to say. Yeah, and I think I'm probably in the middle between you two. I do think it is very good. I think it is not. You know, top tier Scorsese, I, I guess, is where I would say. I think it is better than The Irishman, I'd probably say. And I'd have to go, I need to go back and look at my Irishman review because I was watching uh, the GQ. There was a GQ interview, you know, Scorsese going through, like, kind of talking about his, his big I saw movies. This. And yeah. I, you know, I watched that and, you know, seeing some of those clips from The Irishman, it's just the uncanny valley of, of seeing these guys like Pesci and doing the, the, the DH thing and just. It's not going to hold up, no. uh, you know, visually. And so I need to go back and kind of look at that review. I know great performances are in it, but. Um, I, so I think it is probably better than that, but again, I don't know that it reaches kind of that top tier for me uh, of, of a lot of his other work, uh, especially kind of rewatching Goodfellas recently and, and and stuff like that. And so uh, I, I like that. I, I I don't really feel the time. Uh, uh, it was about the last mm, probably thirty you. minutes where I really started to get a little squirmy. Um, you know, concessions set in. I'm getting tired of this chair, and luckily, mm -hmm. I was in a nice theater with reclining seats, and you know. I was comfortable and you know if I'd been in a different theater with worse conditions I probably would have felt it a lot sooner. Mm -hmm. So I think that factors in quite a bit. But I'm glad I saw it in a theater because I don't know how well I could have done with this at home. Um for a number of reasons, but uh so I I don't really feel the time so I think pacing's good. Um like you said I don't think it's super innovative. Mm -hmm. You know, you know I don't think it's really doing anything new, you know, re reinventing the wheel or anything. Uh, I think Leo's great. Uh, I think Lily Gladstone's great. Uh, De Niro, I think, is struggling the most with the accent, um, but he's good as in this character's hail. You know, he's, he's, he does that well. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I like all of that. The, the movie does a couple of things, and one of them we'll probably talk to a little bit later. 
um, which is probably going to get into the perspective thing of it. Um, but I, I, I don't love when a movie spans a set amount of time and I don't have good indicators of when, how that time is passing. Yeah. And there's a few of those You're moments here not the only where person I'm I've very like, yeah. and there's specifically one major instance where there's a, 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 a character who is married. Something happens to one of the partners. They remarry and the way it's edited, the way it comes together, it looks like this is like very quick. Within how this comes together days. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, I guess it is months or even years within the narrative of the film. And so there are some, you know, I, I don't need, you know, understand show, don't tell. And so, you know, I don't necessarily need title cards. I don't need stuff like that. I don't need exposition. You know, there's a character who gets pregnant. We see the pregnancy. We see the birth. We see the kid getting older. That That's easy to do. That mm-hmm. makes sense. But it is those other moments where I'm like, oh, this just happened. You know, nobody looks older. Nobody looks younger. So it's a weird way in which that happened. And when a movie does yeah. that, it really. And I wonder if the movie doesn't gesture at that because I think Leo changes hats between this and he's got an I mean, I'm, I'm serious but it, it, it's like one of those things where like if you're not yeah. paying attention it's His like multiple Stetsons yeah, or whatever. yeah it's like he's, he's, he's graduated yeah. to a different kind that of maybe I mean a style of hat well, there but the, that's not enough information yeah and, and, and you know they talk about people like some of the characters wasting away and like mm-hmm. but there's even then there's not like a huge physical change in them so it's really hard to kind of denote the it at that time that's pretty much the that's only, really it it's Molly and Ernest's kids are kind of the only demarcator of how long it's supposed to have been yeah yeah. Uh, you know, one character referenced something that happens in 1921. I'm like, how long has it been yeah. since that happened? Uh, you know, so that's one of the main things that irks me about this is kind of keeping up with that part of it. Um, I'm glad I watched it again. Just it is cool to see something like this in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. uh, of this scale, this magnitude of this talent uh, coming here and doing that is cool. Um and so, yeah, I, I enjoy it quite a bit. It's good, not great is kind of where I land. And yeah. I think I'm probably just somewhere between the two of you. I'm I'm a little warmer on than Dustin, but I'm not sure I'd go do it again in a mm-hmm. theater anytime soon unless I was asked to go. I don't know that under my own uh, fruition I would go. So uh, there you have it. Those are our, just our quick thoughts, our quick reviews on Killers of the Flower Moon. Now we're going to open it up. Spoiler alert, spoiler alert. Um we're going to dig in a little deeper into this text. Uh, and so I think for me, the other kind of big criticism I kind of thought of, and I think this does kind of go back to the idea of representation is I don't know that I ever feel the full scale and the full scope of this impact on the Osage people yeah. um, because of how focused it is on Lillian Ernest and Lily's immediate family. They are standing in, for an entire people. And there's a reference at one point that there's been 25, 30 deaths, 30 murders. And I don't really feel that we see the community kind of coming together, the elders, the chiefs, you know, to talk and to discuss what to do, but I don't feel that weight coming through in a major way. Yeah. Same. And that was one of the main kind of, I think obviously from a representation point, I would probably look at it and be a little frustrated, but even just, you know, I don't feel like this doesn't, Yes, it's a big deal, but it doesn't feel like I get what you're um, saying. atrocity level big deal. And does it, that make sense? Yeah, yeah. it absolutely does. Sure. I mean, I, I think the the movie it does have this sort of expectation that you ne- you give the number and you have some awareness of the history, and so you know how horrible this is. But the movie doesn't actually communicate that horror as effectively as I think it should. Yeah, and it's you know there's a lot to get through, and they only shorten it as much as they're able to, right? Mm-hmm. Even condensed. It's still a three and a half hour long movie, but the the sort of things that they don't get to spend time on are things like th- sort of the guardian system 
that that was in place. This whole situation was enabled by federal law mm-hmm. that, you know, full-blooded Osage people were considered incompetent by and large uh, and were not, you know, fit to manage their own oil money. And so they had to have these, you know, white guardians uh, who were, you know, usually prominent folks within Pawhuska or Gray Horse mm-hmm. or, you know, the surrounding Osage County area. Um, and that that just, like, sets the course for what's going to happen. I mean, it, and that's not really something the movie can dig into other than, like, sort of a, a, alluding to, you know, whether it's through a, a parade uh, later in the movie or a poster on his, or a photograph on his wall. Like, Gar- Molly's Guardian is a Ku Klux Klan dragon. Mm-hmm. And, like, the movie doesn't really get into that a lot. Um, and, and honestly, I don't even think David Grant's book got into, like, her her guardians. I don't know if that's that's something they learned in their research or if that's a choice for the movie. Um, but again, it's like there's, it was a whole system of grift and corruption that the movie can't even really get into because it does have to focus in on the murders of Molly's family. And that is sort of, as you said, Arthur, I think, yeah, Molly Kyle and her sisters, uh, Anna, Minnie, um, and, um, and, um, oh my God, I'm missing somebody. Anna, Minnie, and, ooh, Anna Brown, Rita. Rita, thank you. Oh my gosh. Uh, and their their mom Lizzie Q. Um like that's those deaths are sort of the movie's focus. Mm-hmm. And I think it makes sense for them to condense things down and say, like, all right, we're gonna hone in on Molly and Ernest, their families, their relationships, um, because we have to like find the human story to build this sort of larger narrative around. Yeah. I think that makes sense. And it is probably like more effective than the um, you know, detective you know, the Ranger white movie we almost got. Right. Yeah. And, uh, from what I've heard from, uh, Bam who writes for the Oklahoma and on Caleb's podcast, it sounds like, you know, it really was conversations with the Osage that led them to like, be like, okay, where, where do we need to find, like, where do we recenter this movie? Yeah. Because nobody was interested in, in hearing the, the great FBI comes in and saves the day story. Yeah. Well, I was in, sorry. In that interview, uh, with Scorsese, he talks about, that very thing, you know, they had the initial draft of the script. And he read it with a few people. Leo was there uh, to read this initial script, which I think was much more of a procedural type yeah. thing. Um, and in that, he says uh, Leo approached him a, a, a bit of time later and said, what's the heart of this movie? Mm-hmm. And that was where they really kind of focused in on it's, it's Ernest and Lily. Mm-hmm. And from there, they revamped to get us what we are at now and, and i think that is kind of the, the the fundamental thing i keep running up against is that um we're using um molly and um Ernest's story as the mythic story of the whole of the story but it continues and then that, that that's myth- mythological and uh and we continue sort of in that mode but we we proceed along the lines of it through the sort of realist kind of lens of a procedural even though it's not is no longer a procedural and i mean this the the story itself is it's like the evil version of the book of ruth right Mm. uh where ruth has um got to get land back and so she finds herself a man Mm -hmm. and uh it it, that's sort of an honorable version of this kind of thing that's going on here well it's sort of i mean to that point it's that's part of the plot of another lily gladstone film from this year a quantum cowboys yeah yeah, that we saw at dead center yeah like that's kind of a central plot of that is her finding a dude that she can marry to get her land back. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 very much a like an indigenous land theft sort of s- scenario has gone on. And yeah, she's using this guy as sort of 
uh, finds herself a European mm-hmm. to, to help her get her land back. And right. yeah, it's kind of like the reverse of this story in many ways. And and so you can do that if you go hyper mythic with it. And uh, Scorsese here really leans hard into realism. And uh, that might be where it, it it falters a little bit for me is that it it needed to go go more mythic with it, mm. and in so doing, I think we could have found the sort of you know I mean almost universalism of this problem that we can be we can look at the particulars of this issue and then universalize this into uh, Native American genocide uh, throughout North America and general oppression of peoples um, throughout the world. Well, right? which the film gestures towards, right? Like mm-hmm. the fact that the Tulsa race massacre is contemporary with sure. the Osage reign of terror is like not something David Grant's book, like spends much time, you know, focusing on because it's like, how do we even get into that mm-hmm. uh, while we're covering this other thing? But Scorsese like wisely, I mean, I know it's a very basic observation to make, but I think it's very wise of the film to just draw, like connect a, mm-hmm. a straight line between these two events and have William K. Hale sitting in the, the theater, getting the newsreel about the Tulsa massacre and uh, just having him sitting there thinking, I just and it's again, it's like a scene that's very left open to interpretation. Mm-hmm. There's no like definitive declaration made by the movie at any point about like him seeing this newsreel. It's just letting you know, hey, this is contemporary. And the only other mention of it is when the bomb that kills Bill and Rita and uh, their housekeeper goes off. Uh, the the maid at. Um, Molly and Ernest's house. Says, mm-hmm. Oh, this is just like Tulsa. And mm-hmm. yes, yes, off-screen made. I agree. It yes. is exactly like Tulsa. <laughs> these 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 two things are exactly like each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I think it's smarter the movie to connect that line. And it's for me, what works so well is like how this fits in with Scorsese's kind of like larger theme, like career-spanning themes of like American dreams and American violence. And how the two are kind of like interwoven together. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's like, that's the mythical aspect yeah. of the film. I mean, again, it does gesture toward the mythical. I mean, we have a couple death scenes, uh, the visions of the owl. Mm-hmm. And, and and so there, there, there are a couple little sort of anti-realist moments there. But, uh, and I'm not, I'm not really meaning to sort of play higher in the fantasy elements. But um, I just, I keep thinking that we could have had um, Yancey Redcorn um, doing some voiceover. We could have Molly doing some more we, voiceover. We, get, we need more you know? You, that's for me for my money that's we need two or three more sequences like we get of molly at the train station getting ready to go to washington dc mm-hmm. and talking about like the evil that surrounds her heart mm-hmm. and how she wishes she could kill these white men that have killed her family yeah yeah uh, and we get like her pov going through the train station seeing the white gaze on her and like just like everybody at the station just eye dogging her and yeah i agree that's like one of the best sequences in the movie and we need a couple more of those mm-hmm. and i don't know if that is a limitation of scorsese and roth of like being scared to tell stories that aren't theirs to tell or just being like you know this is this is as much as we're willing to infer about her life uh I don't know. It definitely feels like a third screenwriter might have needed to come into the mix. Mm-hmm. I think so. One of the interesting things, I don't know if you guys, I think it was Matt Singer. Um, he had a really fun analysis on this. The, uh, that the runtime here really reinforces sort of the hopelessness of what's going on, I, yes. which is a cool analysis. I agree. And I don't know that that kind of thing that you're talking about doesn't also do that. You know, th- the moment she arrives in Washington, she talks to the president, mm-hmm. right? It, it just feels like, He's throwing her a bone. It does. You know, and, and I think, again, that just kind of reinforces some of that, the hopelessness of this situation. I think uh, 
yeah, I, I, it is Singer because I remember his review saying something like, uh, it, "You're you along with the Osage are desperate for help to come, and hours will pass before it does." And it's just like, yeah, mm-hmm. it's and to Arthur to set the timeline for you, uh, the official start of the murders in the Reign of Terror is is clocked about 1918. Ernest Burkhart pleads guilty for his part in the conspiracy in 1926. So all told, it's about eight years. Okay. Because wow. 1918 is like... Yeah, he, it didn't feel like a huge pass of time, but yeah. the, just the way things it's happen a better part of a decade. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. And again, like, officially, there's, you know, uh, the dates go up to like 1931, 1932 is when some people say that the murders kind of like finally and, stopped. Okay. Uh, but, you know, it's all part of like a large... We get like tastes of this, right? Like the Undertaker charging osage prices right and Ernest kind of takes offense and like that's a real thing mm-hmm. yeah. the drummond family hi <laughs> this is a local podcast so we'll, we'll, we'll fire <laughs> shots uh yeah i'll fire shots at a local political family uh yeah they're they're forebearers we're like famously we're undertakers who overcharged for osage funerals while these families were being murdered like mm-hmm. that's where they're ancestral wealth comes from is taking financial advantage of the situation and doing so proudly talking like you know in contemporary records from the time talking about like oh learning like these are the items that the osage come to the general store for so we know that we can like make a killing on these yeah we mm-hmm. jack the prices up on these particular items yeah i made a hand motion like this is a yeah. video podcast yeah but no yeah i mean you're you're right to make that the the go line go up sign yeah, yeah. i mean that's it's just like it wasn't just murders. It was a whole system of corruption and exploitation. And, you know, the film kind of touches on that, but especially like the guy begging this, you know, this older Osage dude who like has full rights on his, his, you know, is, is not, uh, I forget the, the language they use, uh, but like has full rights on his money. And like this car salesman is desperately trying to get him to just buy the begging car. Him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, okay, if anything happens, you just buy come another back. one. And that's real. That's yeah. real shit. They yeah, yeah. would tell them like, if you get we a flat tire, we'll just, we'll just get you a new car. Just get you a new one. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's wild wow. times. Wild times it was um, in the days. Yeah, it's it's nuts. But I, I definitely feel Dustin's criticism, and I think those are among the strongest criticisms for the film. Is just kind of, you know, what are what are we what are we doing here at the end of the day? Like, what parts of the story are we choosing to tell? What parts are we choosing to omit? And I, I think those are like very fair criticisms. Uh, and I, I think any conversation about this film, like requires giving that service to to those issues uh one thing so this is just i mean we can kind of just jump around here uh we got a few minutes i think to talk about it but um so one thing i noticed and it's just i don't know why i thought about it there's a moment in the end towards the like maybe the last hour movie i don't know you <laughs> just kind of get immersed in this time um but uh, jesse plemons uh fbi uh, agent comes mm-hmm. to talk to Hale, played by De Niro, and that shot opens. It's this overhead camera looking down on uh, De Niro, who's getting a shave in a chair, uh, which I'm pretty, I mean, I'd be surprised if it's not. feels like a direct uh, pull from The Untouchables, where De Niro, uh, I think the first time we meet his Capone character, is getting a shave in a chair, and he's looking up directly into a camera. Mm-hmm. And there's a fun, I think, a little connection here between Hale mm-hmm. and Capone and these kind of types of the people. Mm-hmm. And I know that Scorsese has published this list of references and influences and impacts i I don't know if there's you know this is kind of a random was there any kind of others other kind of nods you may have noticed or kind of intertextual references you pulled up or picked up on in in watching this nothing specific i i felt like it the movie felt like once upon a time in america the leone film quite a bit you know like Mm -hmm. a different kind of gangster movie than he Mm -hmm. normally makes 
And so the, the the setting choices and a little bit of what you see even in like uh, Coppola's Godfather Part Two, um, I, I got a you know some of that sense of what he was doing with this. But it's it's obviously a, a much less competent, much less um, what's the word I want to look for? Uh, attractive set of gangsters. You know, mm-hmm. no nobody wants to grow up to be Ernest or Hale. It's yeah. like, no, not these guys. No, they're much less. Uh glamorous let's yeah. say than yeah. henry Hale. what's his name henry from, hill henry hill no. thank yeah. you yeah in I, no way winsome yes yeah um i think you know I, i'm actually you know reminded in a lot of ways of one of scorsese and leo's last team-ups uh wolf of wall street um it, it's these moments where we get kind of these in wolf of wall street you'll get these cutaways about people's tragic suicides just like kind of a throwaways uh, about like all the money people in in that world that like died young and, and of you know some either self inflicted injury or you know a, a drug overdose or just what what you know their their lifestyle leads to an untimely demise and um, in this film we get sort of these similar cutaways uh, and instead it's you know uninvestigated murders uh, or um, you know sort of period accurate photographs and still frames and sort of the ways in which um, extra textual information, I guess not extra textual, but the very least like things that are happening on the margins of the story are kind of brought into the central focus briefly, uh, and just sort of, you know, with, whether it's, um, you know, uh, Yancey Redcorn's character talking about how like he has some, you know, he has white men who work for him. He's like, but they, and they call me their friend, but I don't trust these guys are lazy. And then it cuts to a bunch of white dudes, like getting Goofing off in the trunk, getting their yeah. photo taken. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And stuff like that. Um, which is these sort of little ways in which we kind of add texture or detail yeah. um, by by doing little brief cutaways. And I, f- I feel like that's another sort of epically lengthened film that uses its its sort of cutaways to kind of add texture to the story. Yeah, I, I was thinking a lot. I was, we've been talking about editing some in class recently, uh, and we'd watched some videos uh, about specifically Thelma Schoonmacher, uh and her process and working with uh, Scorsese. Uh, and so I was kind of, trying to be aware and, and kind of looking for some of the, you know, notoriously using jump cuts in interesting ways or um, just where, you know, putting the camera where he does in, in something like Raging Bull. Uh, and so I was kind of just looking for some of those. But again, to your point, it never feels like it's it's doing kind of some of more of those more innovative things mm-hmm. with this. And I think it is kind of adhering more to something realistic. Uh, but I think one of the things that he does in The Irishman really well that I think he carries over here is a sort of nonchalance to the violence. Like mm-hmm. yeah. there's not a kind of it's it's graphic, but it's not the same type of hyper violence we would see in something where Goodfellas, you know, where Joe Pesci's just stomping a guy's skull in for 30 seconds or whatever. I mean, it is just walk up, pop, and leave. Mm-hmm. You know, we see what what happens, but uh, it's it is this sort of nonchalant. I mean, this is just every day it's kind banal- of a thing. The banality yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I yeah, I like that he kind of I think carries that approach over from he does it again, you know, in the Irishman. And again, kind of connecting, like you said, those the big ideas of crime and the American dream and that kind of banality of violence that gets us there. Mm-hmm. And I think he carries that over well here as well. Definitely. Definitely. We do need to talk about my favorite part of the movie. Is it the fire? 
It is. I do love the fire. That was one of my. I mean, I was Man, thinking about the, the fire. Is that incredible. Is, yeah, that, yeah. When they're burning that farm, I mean, just the way he shoots that. Yeah, when, yeah. When you were asking, I couldn't think of. I'm sure that that is, is that a days rep. of heaven. I that <laughs> I thought about days, days of heaven. It's days yeah. of heaven. I didn't even think about that. I was I was trying to think like there must be a direct pull that I'm not clocking. I mean, it's because, gorgeous though. And mm-hmm. then we kind of get it through between like a pane of glass. The camera's got like a pane of glass between it mm-hmm. and the fire, and it's just sort of what it, uh, we assume is like Molly Burkhart's POV from inside the house. Is this at hell? The fire. Like I mean, is mm-hmm. that yeah. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, and it's it's cool because it's like the scene that leads into that is like the only sort of police procedural scene we get. It's where mm. Tom White like meets oh, in yeah. this field with all of his and like guys FBI plants. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of his Bureau of Investigation like an undercover guys. Yeah. And they like they're kind of recapping the investigation as we see the insurance fraud fire going on at the Hale Ranch. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a fun from uh, that's a sequence really. But what were which what I mean, was your favorite part? My my absolute favorite uh, next to that scene. I, I I love how you know me and that was going to be like my favorite shot of the movie, but my favorite sequence I think is the radio play at the end. Yeah, it rocks. Dude. I was going to ask because yeah. this is the thing I I was talking to uh, Some people a friend probably of the hate sh- it. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was talking to friends of the show uh, Daniel Bo Kemper mm-hmm. uh, and Caleb Masters the other night. We I hadn't seen it yet, mm-hmm. but they both alluded that there's like a double ending kind of thing happening mm-hmm. and there's a very natural end point. Uh, in the film, mm-hmm. uh, we're spoilers, and that is Molly walking out the room after she asks what he was giving her. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Which I think is a very, I mean, that's a Oof. the moment. Yeah, and then we get this radio drama tag that catches us up on everybody's life. That's real, for the record. Like in David Grant's book, we get like a, a end of the. You know, we get the first part of the book is like very much from Molly's point of view. And it's like her and her relatives dropping dead and like her fam friends and family. Like it's very much like what was it like to be living in Osage County with all your friends and family members being murdered around you? Second part of the book is very much from the point of view of Ranger Tom White, like his background, like what his dad's deal was. His dad was also a lawman and, and just sort of like his whole biography and like the whole investigation Part three is just called The Journalist, and it is about David mm-hmm. Gran sort of covering the murders and like going to Osage County and talking to Molly Burkhart's granddaughter and like mm-hmm. all of these survivors in the Redcorn family and all these other survivors and, you know, covering different times this story's been told. Whether I think he might have ref- might reference Pipe for February, which came out in the 90s, but one of the things he references is a contemporary to the time um, historical accounting that was written by, <clears throat> I think it was a true crime writer of the time and then like an osage historian co-wrote it together and then it never saw the light of day and it couldn't find a publisher and then like eventually got released as like a, a mostly fictionalized novel set during the time but one of the times that the stories were covered uh that david Grant mentions is this true fbi files story brought to you by lucky strike and that that is a real radio play that like for, from the fbi's files and it was like a j edgar hoover spearheaded like PR campaign to like drum up interest in the bureau and, and like what their, their work they did in the forties and fifties. Dustin, what did you like? So you, you so it worked for you. I, I, I like the move because it's not a traditional title card epilogue yeah. or ending card epilogue. And so I, I like that different kind of choice there. I, I thought that was innovative, 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 if I can say the words out loud. And uh, so I enjoyed that. And I, and I really, I like Scorsese's performance. I, I know a lot of people are probably, again, I haven't read a lot of reviews, but I, I, I can see where a person like, oh gosh, here he comes. It doesn't work for some people. I know some folks who it's not, aren't fans of it. But to me, it feels like this is why I'm telling you this movie. This is why I made this movie. It's like you feel his deep regret and his deep I, I mean, I teared up. Yeah. When he starts talking, it got me. Me too. And, uh, it's that, and, I, and I think that genuinely works. Like, this is why I had to go 
tell a story because it isn't being told. Yeah. And there's so much of it that's sort of left and lost to history. Well, and oh, yeah, and again, it just really, really worked. And it did another thing where it situates how th- this thing was told. But it was told in looks like the immediate aftermath. It was just sort of then that disposable media uh, that is the world and the churn of true crime anyway. And then this one, because it isn't as well known, and even though I think it's equally salacious, equally interesting, it got lost in just sort of the the mm. refuse heap of history. And uh, so, I mean, yeah, that part of it was, I mean, narratively the best part of the movie almost. Well, for me, like deepens the themes too right it's another moment where we see scorsese sort of riffing on things he's done before right the end of wolf of wall street ends with jordan belfort Mm -hmm. giving this conference or whatever to a group of people and you know it's an audience you're looking at an audience looking at somebody telling Mm -hmm. a story and we get another one of those here at because we have the uh, the live studio audience for the radio show Mm -hmm. and so we we have another film where scorsese is not if not indicting the audience at least like saying, hey, you two are culpable for this crime that you've been told. Like, you you are part of this system. And then he, you know, indicts himself and says, I'm no better than a, you know, an FBI radio hour. Like, this is the same... I make money off of this. Uh, yeah, yeah, this is the same long line of white people telling the story of the Osage murders and making money off of it. Mm-hmm. And, and what do we end on? Uh, Molly Kyle's obituary at Molly Cobb when she remarries uh, and how in her obituary there was no mention of the murders boom hard cut God's eye view of the Osage people dancing like that's how the movie ends that's where says he's saying who, who the fuck am I like why they let me make this movie because I'm Martin, Martin Scorsese. Scorsese and that's probably and even him it was a challenge right yeah mm-hmm. I mean, I was, this wasn't an easy thing for him to do. He almost made one movie and had to throw it out the window because yeah. people were telling him this is not the movie you should make. Yeah. yeah. And he listened. Uh, good on him. Uh, but I, I, I'm definitely it makes sense to me that this is Dustin's favorite part of the movie for sure, uh, because it is like the most formally daring. But I, I agree. It, mm-hmm. To it me, was, it's like it's it makes the movie. Yeah, it was a it was such a tonal whiplash. Yeah. <clears throat> going in. And I was like, what is happening? Um, but I like it. I, I, I think it's it's I mean, it's just refreshing i think if it's nothing else yeah and i i do appreciate the earnestness of i mean and the scorsese appearances is again i mean there's that kind of self-indictment thing going on Mm -hmm. i think that's very interesting read of it as well so uh, i like that about it i appreciate that about it and so well we're gonna go ahead and wrap this up real quick so i I guess final thing i mean this is still in theaters right now when you're listening to this you should still be able to catch it hopefully so Dalton, do you, do you see this in theaters? Do you wait for Apple Plus? What's what are you doing on this? Get out to the pictures. You know me. I'm always going to tell you to do that. Uh, you know, take your history class to it. Get in trouble. Uh, start some good trouble. You know, mm-hmm. find yourself in an Oklahoma Supreme Court lawsuit for taking your your <laughs> class to see Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, yeah, I think this movie rocks. Uh, if you live here, you're obligated mm-hmm. to go see it. Uh, and go give it some money, I think. Uh, but yeah, you know, if you want to wait till it hits Apple, it's definitely easier to manage the bathroom breaks. Uh, here's what I'll say. Uh, if you're trying to figure out when to go to the bathroom, when Leo <laughs> is uh, trying to convince John, I forget his name, the guy with the big, beautiful mustache, when he's trying to convince that guy to kill Henry Roan, that's a great time to go to the bathroom because he's going to like him and haw and pussyfoot around how he doesn't want to kill somebody and then gets told it's an Indian and he's like, all right, maybe I will. And then feels bad about it and then still does the murder anyway. That's all you're going to miss is a white guy like mm, kind of feeling bad and then being a piece of shit anyway. <laughs> Classic white guy stuff. <laughs> go to the bathroom, come back. You won't miss anything. Uh, yeah, no, this is absolutely worth going to catch. And I, I but I get your what you've kind of alluded to, Arthur, like whether it's physical comfort bathroom break accessibility like 
there are definitely reasons to like watch this at home. And if you are more comfortable in your home setting than an out in a, you know, a, a group public area or, you know, arrangement, I can kind of see that. I, mm-hmm. you know, it is a long sit. So, and it is sad. Like it is a deeply troubling film in many ways. And that might be easierly digested at home. But if you like the theatrical experience, I would definitely say that uh, this film benefits from it. Dustin? I don't know that much is gained from the theater. I mean, if I'm going to be really honest, I think this movie is shot to be watched at home. And I think that's sort of why its runtime is what it is. I mean, I, I would like to see those these kinds of movies make money. But yeah, if if you have not been of the, of the persuasion that you were already interested in this movie and already caught it in the first few weeks of its release, then the, probably you would do just as well to wait as to catch it. If somebody want, if you want to go with somebody, great, you know, and have a good time with your friends by all means. But otherwise, it's fine to catch it at home. It, it, it's a movie, I think, designed for home release. Yeah, I, I, I think... I hate it when he says things like that. It hurts me. I think for me, it is, if you know you want to see this, I urge you to see it in a theater because, I mean, I know for me, like if I was at home trying to watch this with my phone by kids, dogs, it's going to be nigh impossible to actually watch it, enjoy you'd, it, engage with it. You'd been halfway through the Osage Reign of Terror Wikipedia page. Yeah. But within 20 minutes like, of the yeah, movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I would have been like, wait, what's this timeline? Yeah. yeah. That's exactly what would have happened. And I also think it's going to, it would just get lost in the shuffle of, I mean, that's the other concern with the glut of content content air quotes content that we get is that things just get lost yeah mm-hmm. uh, and so i don't know that i would see it in the spate of 500 other movies that have released on netflix hulu apple whatever this week um so for that if, if you want to see this i urge you to go see it in the theater with the caveat i think you need to pick a comfortable theater yeah pick one sure. that has nice seats reclining heated i don't care uh, but if you go to an old-fashioned theater with tight seats and no reclining, it's probably going to be a hard set for four hours So, uh, with trailers. But uh, that's where I'm at. I, I think it is worth seeing, uh, but your desire to see it is probably going to be the bigger factor on whether you see it in a the theater or not. But, yeah. I, you know, visually, I don't know that big screen does much for it. There are some, some sequences, but for me, it is the immersion into it that, that really matters. Uh, that I don't think I would get at home. Yeah, some like very lusciously photographed interiors. Yeah, there's some cool like landscapes you might miss. But yeah, uh, we had the problem. Uh, uh, <laughs> tech pedant corner. Nick Sanford thinks uh, the uh, Cinemark XD screen we saw it in was projecting in 2K. And that uh, it, the, the, everything was kind of squished because you, you can't blow up a 2K image that big. Huh. He, he thinks the file was was uh, too small for the screen it was being projected mm, onto. Maybe. Yeah. That's funny. Who knows? I don't notice these kind of things. I, I had a friend who uh, he went to see it. And I guess in the next screen was uh, the Eras tour, uh, which was just drowning out the movie. I've heard uh, tell of this so experience. He had a bad experience there. But. Yeah. Uh, I, I got a good one, so I'm thankful for that. But it, that definitely, uh, yeah, a sign to see it in an IMAX or a Dolby Atmos or whatever, somewhere where you will be protected from the Ares tour. <laughs> well, uh, thank you, boys. Uh, I, I enjoyed this talk. Uh, obviously, with the award season ramping up, we'll probably have many more opportunities to talk about some of these newer movies, especially these big prestige things uh, that are coming out. And so we'll be shooting a lot of garbage, I am sure, otherwise. Dear listener, you can catch us over on the main show. Uh, you're probably going to be here talking about um, uh, the, the much-beloved Venom from 2018 mm-hmm. uh, in the coming days. And so uh, check that out. Check out our episode on, uh, if you like long movies uh, that really lean into that kind of fire sequence from this, uh, you, can, you can go check out Long Day's Journey into Night as well. Uh, and just 
hit us up, follow us, find us, email us, do all the things. We love you, and, and we'll uh, we'll be back next time. <laughs>